Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering a special discount on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com offer. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm a This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 20th. Today, President Trump responds to the latest actions from Iran, how women of color are increasing their political clout, and why it's probably fine to ignore expiration dates. Well, good afternoon. Uh, This is uh, Lieutenant General Joseph Guastella, commander of the U.S. Air Force's Central Command. Early Thursday morning, Iran shot down a U.S. surveillance drone flying near the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf. This was an unprovoked attack on a U.S. surveillance asset that had not violated Iranian airspace at any time during its mission. The U.S. officials have said that this was an act of hostility. Iranian officials say that their actions were justified. They argue that the drone had trespassed into their airspace. Iranian reports that this aircraft was shot down over Iran are categorically false. What's clear is that this is one more step in escalating tensions between the two countries. On Thursday, the chief commander of Iran's Revolutionary Guard said that while his country didn't intend to go to war, it was fully prepared for the possibility. So the president now has another dilemma to face. Josh Dossi covers the White House for The Post, and he's been watching how this most recent action by Iran has forced President Trump to navigate a very fine line. So there was a pretty ominous tweet this morning where he said Iran made a very big mistake. Uh, Go ahead. Question. Iran made a big mistake. But he seemed to de-escalate his language a few minutes ago in the Oval Office where he says... I think probably Iran made a mistake. I would imagine it was a general or somebody that made a mistake in shooting that drone down. It must have been an accident. They couldn't have done this deliberately. There was no man or woman in the drone. We would have treated differently had there been. And he seemed to give an opening for a way to not drive this up further. And I think to some extent, people might be surprised with how President Trump right. is responding to this because in some ways he he does seem like someone who's willing to make threats, willing to say that he's mm-hmm. going, that he's going to go all the way. But at the same time here and in other situations, you've seen that he's actually been quite reticent to take some kind of serious action. He is more cautious with the use of the military than many people would believe. His lesson from the Bush presidency and what he has seen as a reason in his mind Republicans 
have failed or they got involved in these wars. He said repeatedly he thinks the wars in the Middle East were the biggest mistake a president's ever made. He's a president whose instincts are not to go into more countries, not to have more wars, not to have more forceful conflicts unless he is driven to the you know extreme degree. I mean, even in Syria where there were terrible attacks on children, chemical attacks, the president has authorized surgical strikes but can have one-time operations. So this is a president whose inclination is to stay out of any sort of war and to use enough bluster and enough sanctions and enough other tools to keep that from happening. That's what we're seeing him try to do here. You know, the United States has hurt the Iranian economy with sanctions pretty significantly. You know, Venezuela is struggling. North Korea is struggling. There are all of these sanctions that have been installed. I mean, you look— Even 11 months ago, I actually was looking at it just a second ago, the president sent quite a tweet to Iranian President Rouhani, never ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. We are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words of violence and death. Be cautious, in all caps. Well, So that's the kind of tweet. Remember with Kim Jong-un, he promised fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then he immediately kind of shapeshifts back to his best friend and defending him. Well, this conflict in Iran is particularly interesting because it's coming at an important moment, right? That that this is a time when President Trump wants to have some kind of significant foreign policy win to show voters in advance of the election. But it's also a time when he's really starting to turn his attention back home, focusing on the race, not wanting to be mired in the complexities of all these foreign conflicts. Right. And what his domestic priorities on Iran have been, been railing vociferously and to no end about the Iran deal that President Obama signed with the country and what a terrible deal it was. And back home on foreign policy, he has a bit of a complicated record to try and explain. You reported on a meeting that President Trump had, particularly to talk about Venezuela. And I think that it's interesting because it provides some insight about how President Trump thinks about these foreign policy challenges. Tell me more about that meeting. So on Venezuela, the president has grown disenchanted with his administration's on strategy. They told him that a campaign to topple Maduro and to install Juan Guaido, an opposition leader uh, in Venezuela, would work. It has not worked. Maduro still holds power. And the president felt that he had been overpromised by his own national security team, particularly John Bolton, and he let him know that, that he was very upset about that. Uh, The president is not someone with deep insight into the fabrics of many of these countries. And his own advisors would tell you that. So he's kind of trusting some of these folks against his own instincts to really not get involved in other countries. And, you know, when he gets led into one of these decisions, now to be clear, he he has to go along with it. I'm not saying he's not part of his own administration, but he's kind of trusting advisors when he goes against his own instincts. And when it hasn't worked out, there's been a lot of internal recriminations for the people who have pushed these strategies. So in the particular case of Iran, given the fact that President Trump is pretty wary of getting ensconced in some kind of conflict, what happens if Iran continues to escalate things? Several people who are close to the president have said to me, if Iran somehow kills American citizens or they fire on Americans or they attack Americans— president would be more likely to take an aggressive action. He would feel kind of compelled to. 
So far, he has been able to explain their conduct by minimizing it, by the first time saying that the tanker attack was very minor, in his words. This time, maybe it was an accident. There were no men or women in the drone. But we're seemingly approaching a line where it will be harder for him to say, not that we'll turn a blind eye to this, but, you know, proverbially, we'll we'll not respond. And you're going to see an increasing crescendo of hawks on the right. Um, You're already seeing this today a bit, pushing him to do more, to do more, to do more. But what's so curious about President Trump's reaction to this is that he's giving Iran the benefit of the doubt, but that an Iranian military official is going up and saying, no, we we intended to shoot down this drone. Well, it seems that the president right now He's looking for a way not to have to escalate this attack. And you're right. The Iranians are saying, we meant to do this. This was our plan. We we knew what we were doing. I mean, if you look back at one of his most, like, striking rebukes of President Obama, is that President Obama, you know, drew a red line in Syria and didn't do anything about it, that he let these other countries run all over us, that we're going to reposition American strength in the world, that we're going to, you know, have these more robust and forceful responses. You know, we're not going to let people run all over us. And in trade, you've seen him try to do that. And on some of these things, you've seen tough talk. But it's interesting that that criticism seems to be the thing that's challenging him or haunting him a little bit here is, you know, when you're sitting in the Oval Office and you're the one who has to authorize the bombs or authorize any sort of response and you're hearing from your military commanders, I mean, it's, you know, everyone's telling him the different ways it could go wrong and that this could, you know, one of these could go off and kill civilians or they might not go well. And it becomes a different challenge when you're in there. And I, I think we all... It's a reason why for all the criticism of presidents and, you know, there's no job like it, right? It's like why their little clique of presidents is so small and so insular because they've only felt the challenges of each other's felt. Josh Dossie covers the White House for The Post. So how did you first come up with the idea to do this story? So about six months into my beat, I started realizing that my source list of political donors was mostly white and mostly male. Michelle Lee reports for the Post's political accountability team, and she's been covering money and influence in politics for the last year and a half. And I started to wonder, what am I doing wrong? Where are the women and where are the women of color? And so I started asking around, and then I realized... No, this is actually a systemic issue that's being reflected in my source list. The people who are spending a lot of money on politics, spending massive amounts of money that you can now, are mostly white and mostly male. So I started asking around to sources and different activists and groups about what is going on. Is anybody doing anything about the fact that there are not many women of color in the political donor class? And then I started to learn that, yes, there are movements being made in this space and that it's all kind of coming together ahead of the 2020 election. Women of color, for the first time, are major news in the presidential contest. In April, there was a gathering of women of color in Houston. 
And this was the first forum held by women of color, for women of color. And there were presidential nomination candidates who came to speak on various issues that women of color wanted to know. The event held in Houston was sponsored by She the People, which is a new national network focusing on the political power and potential of women of color. It is founded by Amy Allison, who has been a longtime advocate in this space. And this is the first time that this community was basically seen in presidential politics. 1,700 people, mostly women of color, from 28 states are converging on Houston as we speak. And so I went. And I went to a private reception ahead of the event for the people who had organized the event and helped pay for the event. And that's when I started meeting some of these women of color donors who had been almost silently funding some of these upcoming efforts to try to get more involved in presidential politics. This is a very unique room that we've cultivated. We want to have a different kind of conversation with these presidential candidates. We're interested in racial, social economic, and gender justice. And we crafted a set of questions that explore those themes. A lot of them started getting involved in the 2016 election because they were energized about Hillary Clinton. After Trump became president, these women of color who were starting to get kind of interested in politics started feeling like they were marginalized, like the party didn't involve them enough as much as they could have. And all of these feelings and frustrations all started coming together, and women of color started asking themselves, what can we do? What should we do? We've organized. We've volunteered. We've given our time. What else can we do? And the next step really is to give and raise a lot of money. So while you all are writing your $500 or $50,000 checks or thinking about what you can do monthly, I have three things to close out the evening with. So let's go back. Up until this point, what has the political donor class looked like? The political donor class has been largely white and largely male. It's people who either come from money or people who have become involved in seeing the power of political money. And that tends to stem from more traditional sources of wealth. And people of color have largely recently begun entering that level of wealth to be able to have money to dedicate to, like, politics. Do you have numbers on the disparity between how many of these uber-wealthy donors are white men and how many are anything else? So one of the challenges of reporting this story is that there's very limited research and data when it comes to political giving by both gender and by race. What I know from data and research that I've looked into all of the sources that I've talked to and various groups that have been observing this space for many years is that it is overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white. There were just two Latinos among the top 100 political givers in the 2016 cycle, and one of them was a woman. And even when you look at some of the wealthiest black women, like Oprah Winfrey, they give heavily to philanthropy, they give heavily to charities, but then they're not very present in politics. There's an added barrier when it comes to political giving, even for wealthy people who are active in giving money to philanthropy. So a lot of wealthy people, if they have money that they can spend on something else, then they tend to give to a charity because they see that as a generous way to spend their money and a worthwhile cause. To get that person to give a lot of money politically has been another step that they need to take. I'm curious why you think that there is this lack of people of color and particularly women of color 
in the the space of of major political donations because i'm sure part of it is like a wealth thing right that there are just fewer people of color and women of color who are uber wealthy and can donate huge amounts to political campaigns but i think it's also kind of a cultural thing as well as the fact that maybe up until now, there weren't as many candidates that were exciting to people of color. Right. It's definitely a combination of many factors. Wealth definitely is a big part of this. More women of color coming into wealth, having more dispensable income is a major factor. Another factor is definitely the culture. You give money at church, you give money to your community groups, but you don't think about giving money to a politician. In some cultures, you're taught, don't trust that politicians are going to do anything for you. And a lot of them just distrust the entire political system. If you think about especially immigrants and women of color, people of color who are emigrating here from different countries, maybe as refugees or fleeing the political system in their homeland, the last thing they want to do is support a politician. And the last thing they're going to do is think that they can do anything to change the way the country is headed. So when you put all of these things together and then realize that a lot of the women of color who are now getting involved up until this point, many of them may have just been focused on their family, making sure that they have food on the table or just working up through their careers. Then you start to realize why this entire group of potential donors has not been fully tapped. I find this so interesting because I think that the calculus behind becoming a political donor is just one of those unspoken things among rich people that they get that it's not just about supporting someone that you really like or supporting a, a candidate that you want to end up in office, but that it's also about influence and about the fact that when you become a political donor, you get to help set the agenda for what that politician cares about. And I think that that is a message that you don't really understand when you're a regular person and you're thinking, I could give 100 bucks to a charity or I could give 100 bucks to this person who may or may not win this political race, but that it's more about being able to dictate what this race is about and what issues become important. Right. What I've learned after talking to women of color who are giving pretty heavily to political candidates now is that it wasn't until their first major donation that they realized how many new doors are open to them. Up until that point, they thought, the way I affect change is by volunteering my time, is by you know working with my community groups or just kind of supporting people running for office by like watching them on TV or you know some other way other than giving money. And then once they gave that $500 or $1,000, they started to realize, wait, this opens up way more access to me as a donor, and I can affect change in ways that I didn't before. They find themselves sitting in rooms made for donors. They can give their thoughts on the ways that a campaign's policies are shaped. If they care about women's issues or climate change or education, they can say something about that. And people are more likely to listen because they're paying money. Because they gave money. And then once you start doing it, you start telling your friends to do it. And then once you start to donate and you start to donate at amounts that a campaign might start noticing, then you get asked for more money. And in turn, you get asked to weigh in on certain policy matters or attend certain events where the candidate might be there 
or participate in phone calls where the campaign might share their internal strategies with you because they want you to know that the campaign is doing well or on their way to success. And you start getting more involved in these internal discussions, have much more insight into what a candidate is trying to do, what they hope to accomplish, and you may weigh in and say, well, you know, you may want to think about this other thing when it comes to this policy. And they're more likely to listen to you because you are a longtime donor or a dependable donor to that campaign. And that's the sort of influence that you start to exert as a political donor. So for the people who are trying to increase the diversity of the political donor class, what are the obstacles that they say they're coming up against? There's a lot of frustration among many of the activists with what they view as a lack of interest and cultivation by the Democratic National Party. They're worried that in 2020, the party is going to focus on trying to win back Midwestern white voters at the expense of women of color. They see that in 2016, black women especially turned out 94% for Hillary Clinton, yet they don't see 94% worth of investment by the party into their community. And part of the effort now stems from a place where they feel like they just have to take matters into their own hands because a party isn't going to do it for them. This was especially made clear at She the People when the founder, Amy Allison, spoke very openly about her frustrations with the party. I'm going to tell the truth because I'm here to tell the truth. Where the Democrats did not invest in, engage in, a long-term strategy to get us to the polls, but more, more than that, they didn't invest in our vision and our organizing prowess, our leadership. And then what we found after 2016 is the bets are off. So to what extent do you think that this is going to change or develop over the course of the 2020 campaign? Like, are we going to end up in November of 2020 being like, there were two or three more rich women donating to campaigns, but that the fundamental landscape probably isn't going to change that much? I think it will take some time for women of color to fully become a powerful and influential political donor class. It takes much more than an 18-month cycle for one election for them to fully rise, as some of these activists really want to see. Right now, it's really pockets of different groups across the country that are working on this on a more individual basis. And with an event like She the People, you started to see that once the community comes together, they start to realize that there are more of them out there than they thought. And with those sorts of events, with those sorts of conversations and donor meetings is how a larger trend starts to develop. So from the activist standpoint, from the the researcher standpoint, this is a long-term investment and 2020 is going to be a big test, but they're hoping to see gradual improvement in 2022, 24, and beyond. So who's, who's ready to join She the People and give and contribute in this moment? Who's ready? Michelle Lee covers money and politics for The Post. And now, one more thing about how expiration dates don't mean what we think they mean. I have a little cabin, and I left a yogurt there during spring break. I didn't make it back there until the fall. The yogurt was still there, and I looked at it. It looked good. I needed it for my smoothie. So I gave it a try, and it was fine. It tasted good, and I didn't get sick. 
And that kind of was the eyebrow-raising moment for me. I got more and more courageous um, after that. So I've been thinking for a long time about doing a story on just the little ways that we waste food. Darren Taylor is a video producer at The Post. You know, I think we all have kind of that aspirational bag of salad that kind of sits in our fridge (laughs) that we meant to eat. And it turns out it just gets thrown out every week. So when I came across Scott Nash's story, I thought this guy is like a true believer about eliminating food waste. And he did this very, very interesting experiment on eating food past its expiration date. I mean, I would eat tortillas that were a year past date. Heavy cream. I ate heavy cream, I think, 10 weeks past date. And, um, and then meat, sometimes I ate meat a good month past date. If it didn't smell bad, I rinse it off, good to go. So there's kind of a misperception around what these expiration dates mean. A lot of people may assume that these have to do with food safety. And they think, you know, if it's a day past, whatever this date is, then I need to throw this food out or I'm going to get sick. That's really not the case. And that's not what we found when we talked to the Grocery Manufacturers Association. These dates are are really about quality. They're about getting the best eating experience. It's not necessarily about safety all the time. There are times when it is about safety. We're talking about prepared foods, things that you don't reheat, deli meats, unpasteurized stuff. But for the majority of the products you find in the grocery store, this is really about quality. It's about eating experience. And it's about the manufacturer wanting you to have a good experience eating your food and then associate that good experience with their brand. And Scott Nash started to wonder, do these dates have any real meaning? First of all, the descriptors are unclear. There's used by, best by, expired by, all sorts of things. And they're rather arbitrary. Like, nobody really knows what those mean. I mean, I think you'll find that Almost all those are a quality measure versus a safety measure. You know, you now find dates on baby wipes. You find it on salt. You find it on toothpaste, shampoos. Like, why would you ever put an expiration date on salt? It's like millions of years old. So kind of in the mid-20th century, people were moving away from farms, from family farms, and they're moving from rural areas to more urban and suburban areas. So they kind of lost their connection to food and where food comes from. They began to rely more on their grocery stores to tell them what's fresh. And so grocery stores at that time had been getting products with closed date labeling on their food. So that's like a long string of letters and numbers. It doesn't really make sense when you look at it. So there was this whole consumer movement kind of in the 1970s to get grocery stores to kind of open up that labeling. And so that's kind of led us to where we are today. At the time, there was some legislation that was put forward to kind of make things standard across the United States, but that never happened. So now what we have today is kind of this patchwork of laws across the country. Some states regulate some things, others don't regulate them at all. So it's kind of confusing. You don't know really why the labels are there. Are they there for a safety reason? Are they there for some other reason? I came to this story as the type of person who just throws away something a minute past its expiration date. I'm like, 1201? All right, no, it's got to go in the trash. You know, since doing this story and doing all the the research for it and talking to people and um, and hearing Scott's story about, you know, how, how far he could push things, it's really gotten me to think about really what's going on in my fridge. You know, like what's going on in, in this package of hummus? Like... Does it look moldy? Does it smell kind of weird? If if it does, then yeah, it's going out. But most of the time, things look and taste pretty good. So I, I've, I've come to trust myself a little bit more and my ability to, to kind of just sense things out. 
Darren Taylor is a video producer for The Post. That's it for today's episode. If you like listening to Post Reports and want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.